there is just the self. I'm thinking about from a leadership perspective, how do we make sure that we create an environment where it feels safe for everybody to bring their whole selves to work? Even if you know, you're know you having an off day and you feel like your self is just not what you want it to be today, that's okay, bring it. We're here to support. Hi, I am Sophie Vaux, and this is the Rise and Play podcast. In the show, I sit down with influential thought leaders of the gaming industry to deconstruct how they create the best team and company cultures in order to create the best games. Every episode brings actionable insight to improve your leadership, self-awareness, and emotional management skills. Because becoming a better leader starts with becoming a better human. So, are you ready to unlock your full potential in life and business? Let's begin. Raise up your game development with a new podcast sponsor, Game Refinery. Having been the user myself, what I like about Game Refinery's tool is that it helps game developers take a more data-driven approach to adding features, metas, and live events to their mobile games at any stage of development, from new game development to growing the current portfolio of games. And what makes Game Refinery differ from a traditional market research tool is that its team of game analysts play and deconstruct the best-in-class mobile games on an ongoing basis, across 50 genres, hundreds of features, and thousands of live events. The data insights provided are actionable because they are based on data collected by real humans and not bots. And you will save a lot of time browsing through a database of almost 100,000 screenshot implementation that you can collect and share with your teammates. So want to learn more about how game developers like Zynga, Funplus, Rovio, Garena, and King use Game Refinery to build better games with leaner teams? Go to info.gamerefinery.com slash riseandplay to sign up for free access or to request a demo. Or just check out the link in the podcast episode notes. So today I'm very grateful and super excited to have Katarina with me. So before we start the conversation, let me introduce Katarina. So Katarina Lovers Malay is VP and General Manager of Maxis and the scene franchise at Electronic Arts. She heads up a diverse team of individuals from different backgrounds who are continuously innovating and exploring new forms of gameplay for the global community of players. Prior to EA, Katarina also acted as General Manager and Head of Studio at King. She built and scaled their London game studio and played a key operational and product leadership role in the growth of the company. Before that, Katarina was also a product manager and executive producer at Playfish, later acquired by Electronic Arts, and her work was instrumental in the transition from games on these to games as a service. So hey, Katarina, how are you today? Hi, Sophie. I'm so glad to be here. I like to begin the conversation with, you know, full energy and the things, you know, that give us energy. So what is it these days that give you energy, make you feel excited, you know, when you wake up? Oh, that's a great question. I think leading our teams right now through figuring out what new normal is, how do we work together? How do we get the most diverse talent and take advantage of all the changes that, that the pandemic have wrought? So that's what I'm spending a lot of my, my energy on. And it's, it's super motivating because we're, we're solving problems that just haven't been solved before. And we know mm -hmm. we're not going to get it right the first time. And that I think gives us a lot of permission to just try new things and innovate together. Yeah, that's funny that the rules of the game are being reshuffled. And I think in our position, when we are leading teams, organizational or structure, we become a bit redundant at some point when you've done the work, you put structure and then something comes and breaks and everything is collapsing and you have to rebuild it, right? So I'm curious here then when there was a transition indeed with people working from home, 
maybe could you go more in the specifics of how to work with people, how to run teams, or how to we rethink of the model of hybrid work, like now with transition? So I'd say it's all of those things. So I've been with EA now for about a year and a half. So I joined during the pandemic. So I don't have much in the way of of a you know before a comparison of how the team worked. So we had historically been almost entirely based at EA's headquarters at Redwood Shores in the Bay. And now we've leaned really into what we're calling a distributed hybrid model. So we're hiring across pretty much all of North America and Europe. So all of the states and regions where we're, we're legally allowed to hire. And so thinking a lot about how do we work asynchronously? How do we create community in these local areas so that you know you might not be near somebody who's on your team but maybe there's somebody with you know elsewhere within EA so we can create local community as well as just a lot more more knowledge sharing because EA is you know it's, it's often referred to as a, a federation of states because mm-hmm. the studios work pretty independently and a lot of the teams work pretty independently and and I think the the pandemic and this shift to being more distributed has created a lot more opportunities for just knowledge sharing across your team because you have you have to work a little bit harder to make those those connections and talk to people who you you might not otherwise but being able to shift into this more distributed model means that we are able to attract talent who you maybe weren't interested in working in the bay or couldn't have a 9 to 5 job that required an hour commute each way. And of course, that that takes work and you have to be really deliberate about how we make that work as well. So it's 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 not without its challenges, but but I think the the benefits far outweigh the the challenges of it. Mm-hmm. And we'll dive a bit more into that through the conversation. But before let's take a, a little step back also to introduce your role at EA and especially on uh, the franchise of uh, the Sims. And on Maxis, so you're the VP and GM, which is a, you know, a broad title. And I wanted to understand as well, what are your main responsibility, uh, focus, mission with this role? The GM role is different in very many studios. I think it's a slightly different flavor in, in lots of places. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so for, for me, for Maxis, I really look at the GM role as sort of the, the, the call it the mini CEO of the business. And so I think a lot about what is our strategy for Maxis and for The Sim. So where are we going? Do we have the right people on board? And does everybody have the right resources and the information in order to be effective? And, and so a lot of the things that I focus on are certainly the our strategic choices around what we're doing with our, our games and our, our products. But also, I think much harder part is figuring out what is it we're not going to do? Because we've got a team of really, really smart people. And most of the ideas, uh, or at least a majority of the ideas that people come up with, like they're pretty good ideas. And so the hard part of the job is saying, yeah, that's a really good idea, but we're not going to do it because we don't have the resources to be able to do it well, or, or it's going to split our focus, or it's quite frankly, it's not as good an idea as this other thing that we're going to try. So a lot of that figuring out what are we going to do? What are we not going to do? Uh, and how do we work within EA to really draw on the power of this, this powerhouse of a company that has so much talent so that we can really all pull in, in the same direction. The, I really came back to EA because of The Sims. I think that The Sims is 
such a special brand and, and games franchise. And it's really unlike anything else. And it's it's a real privilege, I feel, to be able to shepherd this brand that is going to, you know, it's going to outlast me. It's going to outlast everybody on the team, hopefully, because it matters, right? It matters in a way that, I, I mean, I can't think of you know, just a handful of brands that really have the impact on people's lives in the way that The Sims does. And I also think that we've really just scraped the surface on what the potential is for The Sims. I, I think it can be and, and should be and will be so much more impactful than it already is because all of the things that, that The Sims stands for, all of the things that our players believe in, right? That is the way of the future, right? Discovery, inclusivity, creativity, play, like that's it. That's what we're all about. And it's not if you're a gamer or you're not a gamer, right? This is just people. And this ability to use a game like The Sims to figure out who you are and express yourself and just try new things and imagine life in a way that maybe it reflects your life or maybe it doesn't. Just like this sense of experimentation is is so amazing. I, I think there's just so much power in that and really loving leaning into that and hearing the stories that come back from our players around the impact that The Sims has had on their on their life. And right, we make we make fun, right? We don't we don't cure cancer, but we make fun and we manage to make people's lives better by making this game. And like that is just super, super motivating and quite frankly, not an experience that I had had to this extent before before coming to The Sims. And it's really special. I wanted to ask as well here, I've been following, there was a masterclass from Will Wright on how he envisioned building The Sims. He was trying to create the experience of a pyramid of Maslow, the needs, you know, like physical basic needs. And then the, I think after you have like uh, aspirations and when the Sims have a professional career. And as you are, I've been working on the franchise, I'm really curious about how do you see the evolution of the franchise? So the Sims, because as a society, we have evolved quite a lot the past 22 years. And Mm -hmm. probably the way of how we think about human interactions you know, and all the things that happen, how do you reflect this back in the game? I'm really curious about this on the product side. That's an interesting question. It's one of the things that is so powerful about not just The Sims as a game, but also the team behind it. The Sims 4 is over eight years old. And if you look at what's in the game now versus what's in the game, what was in the game when we launched, we we work so closely with our community to really reflect back and I think to give them the tools to reflect the world as they see it. And so The Sims is, it's an evolving experience, right? So even just in the last year, we incorporated gender neutral pronoun options and an ability for players to be able to specify their sexual orientation. We've made a lot of improvements around how we we represent racial diversity and and gender diversity and we have a we have a long way to go we're certainly not we're not done but that's i think the beautiful thing about society also society is never done right and so the features that we put in now were not really a topic of conversation when we we launched the game to the same extent that they are now and so this this commitment to evolving the game and the player experience 
to really reflect our players' lived experiences and the experiences that they want to be able to tell in the game is really important to us. And as we talk about the evolving as well, you know, needs in a game from the audience and the community and the conversation you have with them, who is the audience these days of The Sims? Are they the ones that started, like, I, I consider myself a The Sims audience when I was playing on PC, I was a teenager. Or is it also a new audience that is coming to Sims? And how do you navigate across generation, I would say? I always love hearing people's stories around when they started playing The Sims or the people in their lives who play The Sims, because it is so it is so diverse. And, and I think that The Sims has been this sort of a, a coming of age experience for you know, 22 years of, of teenagers and, and young adults. So the, the, the hallmark, I think, of the audience is actually its diversity. It's super gender diverse. We, we certainly have a lot of, of women who play, especially if you compare to other PC and, and console games. But we also have a lot of men who play, right? We have mm-hmm. a lot of gender diversity, sexual diversity, racial diversity, age, geography, interests. And I think that's it speaks to the nature of the game, right? It is a game about life. And we really try to focus on giving you the tools and the building blocks to be able to tell the stories that you want to tell about the kind of life that you want to imagine. And maybe that life involves, you know, the Grim Reaper, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be a a super realistic uh, depiction of what your life is, but it's you being able to recreate what's in your imagination. And, and the appeal of that is is pretty limitless. I think many game companies or even like what we see a bit with the metaverse are trying to also create those new experiences where you have an extension of a self in a digital experience. How do you define what makes the Sims the Sims? You know, are there design pillars or product pillars that are clear and have survived the time that differentiate quite well the seems to other attempts of creating, you know, this second life universe or virtual life. There's a lot of games where you have an avatar that is an extension of you, and then you go off and you do whatever it is that's that's in the game. And one of the things I think is really unique about The Sims, it's, it's actually about multiple people. Our players very often will create a sim that looks like them, but the game is not actually about that sim. It's about all the relationships and the dynamics of all of these little people who you care about. We're constantly hearing stories from the community around, oh, yeah, I I used The Sims to try something out before I did it in the real world. Because those dynamics, right, they're they're pretty universal. uh, And they they might have some quirkier variations within The Sims for sure. But, you know, whether it's around... You know, exploring whether or not they might be gay or whether they, they want to have a family or they want to have kids or a pet or trying on a career. You know, it's, it's really fun to just test that out and see how it feels because everything is safe. It's low stakes, right? It's non-competitive. It's all around just self-expression, try things out, anything goes. And we don't get a lot of chances to do that in real life. So it's, it's nice to be able to do it within the, the confines of your game. And not only are we talking about the people that are impacted meaningfully by the game, the players, but also I'd like to talk about the people making the games. Mm -hmm. And so I could imagine that it's a pretty big team with a certain structure. I was curious, like how, uh, you know, are you structured today since the game is live and there are constant updates? 
And you mentioned as well having a distributed team. So maybe you can mention how it is today or how would you like it to be in the future and your vision about, you know, this diverse team that you started to talk about. Sure. So it is a large team. Across Maxis, we are over 300 employees. And, and that is just 300 game developers, right? That doesn't include any of our, our marketing partners or commercial partners or, or any of the numerous teams that help us make the Sims and, and bring the Sims to our players. We are divided around the work streams that we're bringing to players. So it might be different packs. It might be base game updates. We have an entire team, for example, that is working on just modernizing our, our tech stack and trying to make it easier to build on the game because it's, you know, it's an eight-year-old game and infrastructure has come a long, a long way since then. We try to balance having continuity of teammates with talent mobility and allowing teammates to move around and have different experiences. and really leaning into communication is one of the things that we found and I'm sure everybody else also found right as we was we went into working from home during the pandemic a lot of the informal casual conversations and the ways that you would have learned stuff kind of just walking in the hallway right that that falls away and so we have to be just extra extra deliberate as it relates to knowledge sharing keeping people in the loop on what's been going on and trying to not have people just sit in meetings all day long. So we use Loom quite a lot to allow people to just record a quick video, send it out, trying to lean heavily into more of that asynchronous communication. We pretty much all just live in Slack, creating really structured opportunities, both to learn and, and to give feedback, You know, making sure that we are listening to our teammates, listening to our players, and trying to challenge our own assumptions and around ways of working or even what we might be working on. And in this uh, big structure, who are your key collaborators and the people you really work closely with to make sure that, you know, it's rolled out like with a strategy or the direction you have? How are you structured mm -hmm. in this middle management level on Sims? So we have, um, so I have a, a Maxis leadership team that represents my design leaders, my most senior producers, operations leader, product management, HR, art, experience design, so audio. So all of the crafts that contribute to making the game. And then each game project that we have has its own leadership team. And, and so we try to be really deliberate around making sure that as many of the decisions as possible are pushed down into the team and that the senior leadership teams are really focused on, you know, what is it that only they can do? What is it that unblocks the ability of the teams to make great experiences and, and be a great place to work? So we focus on, on certainly things like strategy, like we talked about at the beginning, but also culture, right? And I am, I'm sort of obsessed with culture and how you build and maintain culture and evolve your culture, particularly as you're scaling, as you're growing, and we're growing a lot. Um, and also as you're going through substantial change in the last couple of years have been you know, nothing if not substantial change. And we now have 
more than a quarter of the studio. I haven't looked at the numbers lately, but as of March, it was more than a quarter of the studio had not you know, had joined since the start of the pandemic. And, and so, and it, it's, and most of those people, right? It's it's because there's just new people joining, and so they don't have the the history of whatever the, the kind of the Max's pre-pandemic norms were to lean back on. And so we need to be much more deliberate around explaining, you know, what is our, what is our culture and how do we make decisions and how do we resolve conflict and what do we do if we, if we see behavior that we don't think is conducive to the kind of environment that we want to create. So I think a lot about those sorts of things and, and uh, our leadership team spends a lot of time thinking about how how are we going to set ourselves up to to scale and make sure that we have good opportunities for our, our team members to go try and do different things. Because as a, as a studio, as Max says, we, we are all in on The Sims, right? We are really mm-hmm. focused on making The Sims as impactful as it can. And certainly there are folks that say, you know what, I've been on The Sims for 20 years. I would like to do something else. And so we try to have really healthy, open conversations with them to help them find something else to do ideally you know within EA but otherwise elsewhere because it's a you know, it's a it's a small community this industry that we're in and i really look at it from the the long term right of making sure that we're we're set up to deliver for our players and and that we are call it adding to the the games ecosystem because maxis is a really it's a really friendly place to work i think there's a big difference when people come to work because they're thinking, right? And this sense of we come to help people create and express themselves and feel better about how they face the world. Like that's pretty motivating. Certainly I used to have much more of a home self and a work self. And those those lines are gone. Right? There is there is just the self and I'm thinking about from a leadership perspective. How do we make sure that we create an environment where it feels safe for everybody to bring their whole selves to to work? Even if, you know, you're having an off day and you feel like yourself is just not what you want it to be that day, like, that's okay. Bring it. We're here to support. I consider myself quite obsessed about questions around culture. So I totally understand and relate to what you said, because it's an evolving topic and there's a definitely desire from very experienced talents I have seen as well but are asking those questions. How do you work? What's the mission of your company or your studio? What is important for you in your games? What are your values? And focusing on this, I believe as well is the future of actually of a workplace. And I, I hope that we are not just a, a small group talking about those things, but it will be a norm at some point where talents will di- dictate that that's what they want. And if they don't have it, they just walk away and find a better place. You know, that's how it is. I, I totally agree. And and I also think though, yes, you know, we talk about values, it's not that some values are better than other values, right? I think otherwise you just end up with this very generic set mm-hmm. of of cultural values. We've spent a lot of time thinking about and defining what our values are as as Maxis, because our values should not feel like FIFA's values or like Apex's values, right? Because we're we have different audiences, we have different motivations, and they're not better or worse. They're just they're just different. They're ours. And thinking about how values really represent how you 
how you behave when you're at your best, right? When, when we're really proud of ourselves, what is it we've done? So for us, for example, our values are be authentic, champion inclusivity, challenge ourselves and create collaboratively. And we know that when we do those four things, then we will knock it out of the park, right? We will deliver for our players. We will create experiences that people love. We will have a good time doing it. We will have a successful business. And when we're falling down on any of those four, it's something, something's off and the, the outcome isn't going to be as impactful as it could be. Let's take a short break to hear a few words from a sponsor who are making this episode possible. Raise up your game development with a new podcast sponsor, Game Refinery. Game Refinery's analysts and data scientists deconstruct and uncover the best practices behind the most successful mobile games today. With Game Refinery, you can prioritize new features in your product roadmaps based on real-world data. Save time with a database of almost 100,000 screenshot implementations and thousands of first-time user experience videos. And create your own live ops playbook inspired by the best practices of leading developers. Want to learn more about how game developers like Zynga, FunPlus, Rovio, Garena, and King use Game Refinery to build better games with leaner teams? Go to info.gamerefinery.com slash rise and play to sign up for free access or to request a demo. Or check out the link in the podcast episode notes. Now, let's get back to our conversation. What has been the process for you? Because you talked to us as well about evolution. So there's evolution of the themes, there's evolution of work, you know, workplace mm -hmm. expectation of people and also scaling. What's your process in approaching values and culture? And examples of maybe things you put in place to, you know, be always in touch with actually how people work and what they care about. Uh, so I joined EA in April of last year. And as part of getting sort of settled, we did this, this refresh on our, on our values because we had values that were you know, stuck on a wall somewhere, but they weren't really something that we did that much about. And The way that we, we did them is we pulled together groups of people from across the studio looking for different levels of tenure, different age, gender, function, team, to really understand what is it that makes Maxis Maxis. And so it was really a, call it a bottoms up values exercise because I explicitly did not want to have something where we just came up with some things that we liked or how we wished we were, right? but said like, what is it that we actually do that, uh, that makes us special? And it's an, it's an ongoing exercise. So even now, as, as we speak next week, I have my quarterly leadership summit with my, with my team. That's one of the things we've put in place as a pandemic, or I call it a distributed hybrid mechanism as we all come together once a quarter. But one of the topics for the summit that we're having next week is actually focusing on, okay, we've got our, our values. Are we doing enough to, to reinforce them and really incorporate them in how we operate? So one of the things we do already is we do periodic town halls about once a quarter. And every quarter we highlight a couple of people within the studio who we think have done a really exceptional job of living our values and representing our values. And that might be the way that they collaborated on a feature or the way that they interacted with our, our players to get feedback or supported each other, or even dealt with something that didn't go very well. I, I think, you know, everybody talks a lot about 
celebrating failure. Nobody wants to celebrate failure, but what you do need to do is actually talk about it and learn from it and make it okay to fail. We have uh, my favorite Slack channel we call Max's Kudos, and it's just a really nice way for people to drop in thank yous or, or recognition of work or effort or contributions that they got from somebody within the studio. And so we try to have a lot of, call it bigger moments as well as smaller moments to just really reinforce those those values and, and, and that behavior. Before EA, when I was at King, when I joined King, I want to say we were maybe, we were under 150 people. And uh, in the four to five years that I was there, we grew to 2,500 people. If you look at you know any business book, we should have collapsed under that kind of scaling, but but we didn't, and we thrived. And and King obviously continues to be a, a great success. And I am I am convinced that part of the reason why we were able to do that is that we had this really strong foundation of what our values were and what good looked like and what we what we encouraged and discouraged. And that was something that that was consistent from all the way from the top down to you know the most junior member of the team. And so I've really taken that as one of my like main main learnings of building and scaling teams is you've got to have that cultural foundation uh, in a good place because otherwise you don't have something to to build on, right? As you get bigger and you're no longer talking to your people every single day and you've got most of the decisions are decisions that you are no longer part of making. How do you how do you give guidance to your your team about what a good decision looks like? Right? That's that's culture. It's that's that's it's not a keg or foosball, right? It's how do you how do you know what a good decision looks like? Something that I, I found interesting as well in your path. So you started more game oriented, so in roles as producer or a product manager, and then getting more into, uh, at King, as I understand, you were general manager, so head of studio, more people organization. And like now very, you talk a lot about culture, people in the end, you know, that's a lot about people. And I'm curious how this journey has been for you, where you started from a product and these days, you know, the key learning or discovery for you that, okay, this is what I love to do, uh, leading you now to really focus on culture and people. So I'm on, I think I'm on career number six. I'm not, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. I think in many ways, my career was marked by the fact that I, I graduated twice in two recessions, which I would not necessarily recommend as a strategy, but it ended up being really good for me because all of the normal jobs, quote unquote, were, were not available. So you ended up just being a little bit more creative around what you were going to do. And so I started my career in operational risk management software. <laughs> so I was in fintech and I worked with large banks to help design and implement software for them to do capital adequacy modeling and fintech and a bunch of you know essentially banking software. And I learned that I loved product and figuring out how to make things and working with you know working with customers to figure out how to solve their problems. I also learned that I did not want to be doing operational risk management for for the rest of my career. I, I felt like it kind of didn't it didn't matter enough to me, and that at the end of the day, if I did a really good job, somebody made a little bit more money, but it didn't it didn't matter. And so I went to business school uh, and thought I would do strategy consulting, which is you know a really good thing to do when you don't know what you want to do. And 
did a bit of that. But then just as I graduated, the Great Recession hit. And so once again, all of all of the jobs disappeared. At this point, I had moved to London with my now husband for a job that that fell through with the recession. And I thought, oh, wow, this is just the worst possible thing that can happen, right? I've got this boatload of debt. And now I'm in, in London. I don't know anybody here. I'm in a place that doesn't really value MBAs, or at least didn't at the time. You know, this sucks. I guess I'll just go back to what I was doing before. And a woman who I had worked with in my internship, she literally she posted on social media. She said, I love my my job and we're hiring. And I said, What what do you do? And she said, I work for this video game startup. I'm like, video games? Like you're not a video mm-hmm. games kind of person, right? You're like a sophisticated, super smart, cool woman. That's not that's not what women do. Because it was just not some, wasn't something that was on my radar at all. You know, I played a ton of games, but it never occurred to me that it was an industry that you could actually have a real job in. I don't know. I just hadn't really thought about it. And so I went in and I I met with John Erner, who was the general manager of Playfish at the time. And it was just a totally mind-blowing experience of realizing like, wow, these are my people, right? This is this combination of creative and data-driven and businessy and growing and changing all the time. And I just absolutely fell in love with it. Uh, and so went from Playfish to to King to build out their studios. And then when my second child was was born, I said, let's move back to Boston to be closer to, to family because my parents live in the area. And so I decided to take a break from, from games at that point because I wasn't sure if I wanted to be in games for the, for the rest of my life. And so I went and did, joined an AI startup as a COO thinking, well, I'll learn a lot there, which I certainly did. And then went into consumer electronics, focusing on what I could learn there. And because I really focus on what is it that I will learn from this experience that will add to my previous experiences. I find that constantly I'm, I'm, you know, having a conversation about, I don't know, a game design detail and something will come up that I was thinking about when I was working on a headphone product, right. Or, or even, you know, a, a fintech piece. And so I, I, I'm just a big proponent of putting together different experiences, but whether it's lived experiences or you know, diversity of your team or, or just in your own life. That's a very inspiring journey and the way you approach actually, you know, your career and growing of skills and not being focused on just one thing or one topic, or like you said, not the culture for the sake of culture, but it is to help with the growth. And there's a reason why we talk more about it because the previous way <laughs> when we're focusing maybe on just get a project done, hire people, trade people as resources, it's not working anymore, mm-hmm. this model. So we are evolving and we have to adapt and understand as well what are the expectation, you know, of the market, the world these days, even players, players' expectation have evolved as well. They, mm-hmm. they expect a certain ethics in the games as well they play. I think also you know, you're, you're touching a really important part around what is one of the many things that's special about games and think different about games is it is the cross-functional nature of the team. And it's when you can get all of the different crafts, 
working together, that's, that's where the game starts to sing. And when you're constantly swapping out your resources, right, that's really hard. And so that's where I think that that culture of building a, a community, a team where people really can trust each other and want to stay for a long time makes, makes just a, a huge difference. You've done quite a lot and brought, you know, experiences in different fields. And as far as you can recall, I'm curious to hear what was the most challenging time of your career, like the hardest one, which mm. probably led to the biggest learnings. <laughs> There's been many hard, hard times in my career, but I would say the hardest, it wasn't when projects were killed and it, it wasn't even, you know, what, where I got laid off. It was actually coming back from maternity leave. Because it really messed with my sense of of self and value that I was adding in a way that I did not expect at all. And it had nothing to do with the baby, right? People kept telling me, oh, you know, when you become a mom, your priorities will change. Like, I'm sorry. Like, don't tell me that. That's bullshit. Like, that's just, that's such a personal choice of how you see the world. But for me... And I think like as any responsible manager or leader, right, you put a lot of focus into making sure that you do a, a responsible handoff and that you're leaving the business that you've built in a good place. And then you go on maternity leave and nobody calls you anymore. And then you come back and you're trying to figure out how to fit yourself back in when you designed the system to not lead you anymore. And it just it really messed with my head. And, and so I think a lot about it now and I, I give a lot of unsolicited advice to team, to team members when they've got somebody who's going on maternity leave, particularly the, for the first time, because it is such a, mm -hmm. it's such a unique time and everybody's different. And so what I realized that my boss was trying to be respectful and give me space and, you know, make sure that I felt like I could have the time to be with my baby, but it, the way it felt for me is that I wasn't needed anymore. And I was, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't valued and that was actually much harder. <laughs> and so by the time I got to my, my third kid, I was able to be much more, I think, proactive with my manager of saying, okay, I need, I need it like this. And I want to come back in this way, but for your first kid, like you just, you don't know. And so I, I do think it is a really underappreciated part to figuring out how to build a an inclusive team that allows for people to come in and out of the business as things happen in their lives, right? Whether it's it's maternity leave or or taking care of a of a family member. I think that as it will be one of the areas where as we come out of this pandemic and figure out our new ways of working, where I hope there will be a lot more Um, call it modern thinking, right? Of, of how do we extend the flexibility to not just be what are the hours in which you are working, but what are the ways in which you're you're engaging? And we don't necessarily have to be all out or all in on on a lot of these things. Yeah, and thanks for sharing this uh, personal part also of uh, I think reality as well. When uh, as women, you know, of course you are focused on career growing and you you want to stay in the game in a way you know it's it's something we're passionate about and when you're out i recorded recently actually this week an episode for a podcast with a new season focusing solely on this topic uh, motherhood and career oh. so 
I have Emily, for example, who built a, a new business while being a mother and we put more light exactly into those topics. So it's, it's really funny that you mentioned it. It's like I see even the linearity of this topic, but there's a big misunderstanding of how the experience is going for women. People who are uh, your colleagues and uh, seeing you returning, they cannot imagine what you're experiencing because they haven't experienced it. This year of our new hires, 60% of our hires this year have been women, which is just amazing. I mean, it's, uh, I don't know what the industry standard right now is, but it's certainly not 60%. And, and I think being able to have more and more, this is why the diversity matters, right? You have more people with these different lived experiences who can advocate for others. And it's really hard when you are, you know, when it's just you, because you don't, you don't even know how to advocate for yourself because you don't know what you need, right? Yeah. Because it's, it's also new. So I am, I am optimistic for the future, but it, we've got a ways to go. I can give you a statistic because I just wrote my newsletter about it yesterday. In the industry, at least in Europe, it's 20% in the workplaces of women in game teams in, in general. So you're breaking the record here. And in leadership position, it's less than 10%. So it's even lower. So congratulations okay. for, and I think you play a big part in this recruitment because representation matters a lot when you feel it's a place where you will belong. You will not be the only one. It is very reassuring actually to want to join those kind of places. Well, thanks a lot, Katerina, for sharing all your experience. And little disclaimer here, I'm on a journey uh, soon. So I'm also in transition of jobs where I will be heading to similar challenges like you described. And so it was very helpful and inspiring just for me as well, personally, all that you shared today. So I feel like, uh, again, grateful for this conversation, also for our audience, but also for me, that you get to give the time today to share you know, your journey and your learnings. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I, it was a really fun conversation. Thanks for listening to this latest episode of the Rise and Play podcast. I am trying to grow a community of conscious leaders across the industry and beyond. So if you want to join this movement, please share the podcast with other conscious leaders because we have so much more we can learn from each other. Also, please don't forget to follow the show so you don't miss out on future content. Every episode is packed with actionable insights that will help you improve your leadership skills now. And if you are interested in learning more on the topics that we discussed today, you can find more insights on riseandplay.io and there you will also find my free masterclass on conscious leadership. So have a great week and until the next time, 